0: WCNC Charlotte this is flashpoint where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered
1: thanks for joining us here on flashpoint i'm ben thompson this week finally goodbye mask mandates mecklenburg county officially lifting the order next saturday it comes after the health director dr rayner washington's recommendations citing four different metrics shifting COVID conditions higher community immunity stabilized hospitalizations, and a general lack of enforcement. County Commission meeting this past week was where the decision was made. It was packed with people. Lots of folks had signs, as you see there, asking county leaders to finally get rid of this thing. They also filled the public comment time. There were people though who wanted the mandate to stay in place.
0: To be blunt, no one sitting in an office should be making a decision for my child unless they are putting boots on the ground to see what has happened.
2: We all are tired of wearing a mask. Nobody thinks this is the best thing or a great thing, but we make the decision to wear it because we think it's the better
0: decision for the larger community.
1: Proving good people can disagree. I think most people could hear those two sound bites and say they both make sense to a certain extent. But why the change in masks now? Ultimately. The health director argued cases and hospitalizations are both down and cloth masks honestly just have not been effective against Omicron. There's also a higher level of immunity now throughout the county thanks to vaccines and the fact that a lot of people have, at this point, gotten the virus. Joining us today, new Mecklenburg County Health Director, Dr. Raynard Washington. Doctor, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. My pleasure. So last time I looked, our positive rate, percent positive rate here in Mecklenburg County was right around 14.5%. Um, That is a long way off from the 5% threshold we were saying for a long time that we needed to get below in order to drop the mask mandate. So give us an idea what exactly has changed.
0: Sure, there there are a number of aspects or uh, a number of components of our conditions here in the community that have changed over the course of the last several months. Uh, Specifically, I uh, will first point to obviously that we are um, uh, at a level of community immunity that I think uh, is uh, given the greater transmissibility of Omicron and that the large number of our residents who were infected. uh, Certainly, I think uh, that is an important uh, aspect of where we are today. Uh, As I I mentioned in my comments earlier this week, we are also uh, growing increasingly concerned about the reliability of percent positivity AS A METRIC uh, TO BE ABLE TO HELP US UNDERSTAND uh, THE FULL TOTALITY OF WHAT'S HAPPENING IN in TERMS OF COMMUNITY TRANSMISSION HERE. Uh, THAT'S MOSTLY BECAUSE WE AS PUBLIC HEALTH AGENCIES ARE GOING TO BE INCREASINGLY CHALLENGED Uh, to be able to count those, uh, every case of COVID in the community. Uh, That is mostly because of the the wide availability of rapid at-home test kits in the community. Uh, We do have a large number of those available. Uh, We are not able to count those at this time. Uh, And so that metric percent positivity, we've started to see a very clear divergence from it, uh, and our uh, case rates and other indi- other important indicators uh, in our in our tracking.
1: So that metric, percent positivity, what we u- we use for the better part of the last two years for most of the pandemic, because of at home tests and various other reasons, community immunity just isn't quite as uh, as useful as it once was.
0: So, and I, I'm I'm confident that we are on the other side of our Omicron surge here. Uh, our experience was very similar to other countries and cities and states that were a little bit ahead of us and that that part and that uh, surge. Uh, And so certainly I believe uh, that now is a good time for us to begin this transition to uh, what I've phrased as COVID response 2.0, but to begin to off ramp some of these response measures and really focus our response again on the most vulnerable in our community, uh, as well as to empower the community to be able to act with the resources that we have available uh, to help us manage COVID in the long for the long term.
1: As you know, we've been down this road before. lifting a mask mandate only to reinstate it. Given some of the reasons you just, you just gave us, the vaccinations, community spread, um, but also a, a lack of enforcement. And as we saw in Omicron, face masks were honestly just not cutting it. Um, do you see an instance or a scenario in which we go back to masking mandates?
0: Sure, so so I don't, I don't I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what the future holds for sure. Uh, coronaviruses are, are very fragile and mutate a lot, uh, which is certainly concerning for us. And there are a number of pathways that might happen as it relates to what endemic COVID-19 looks like. Uh, and so I think that is yet to be determined and yet to be seen at this time. Uh, I'm certainly I'm certain that we'll, we'll continue to have uh, some additional surges in the future. Uh, I don't know what they'll look like because I don't know what the mutations and, and what the consequence of those mutations will be. Uh, so I can't say definitively that there won't be a time where we as a community may need to implement measures uh, across the community, community wide measures. Uh, but I do believe that we do have to transition to drive our decision making about those measures uh, based on uh, the severity of impact on our community as opposed to simply counting cases. Uh, it is important for us to understand sort of what impact it's having on uh, on severe illness or people sicker or people dying more frequently, uh, as well as the capacity of our important systems like our our healthcare systems, our emergency management systems—if they're able to sustain their operations uh, to be able to provide critical healthcare services, uh, those really need to be sort of the focal points of, of us triggering. Sort of, do we need to implement additional community-wide mitigation measures, like, for example, a mass mandate? So, uh, I do know for sure that you know we will make advisories at periods when uh, we do start to see upward trending in any of our indicators uh, to the public to let them know that you know now is a time, particularly those for who are who are more vulnerable uh, to 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 put those masks on and particularly look for those higher quality masks to ensure you're protecting yourself
1: still I would say advisors are a little different I just want to be clear for the folks at home so you are I mean I want to set people up at home for for proper expectations you're expecting there's probably going to be more surges again uh, at some point down the road you're expecting there's going to be other variants again um, whether it's five months from now or a year from now but but the public health response uh, is going to be a bit different that's that's what you're saying
0: Yes, sir. Yeah, exactly. And, and and we've got to start to turn that corner as a community, as a as a country, really. Uh, and I believe we'll, we'll hear more from our other partners uh, about about what that transition looks like as a nation.
1: For businesses out there, they can still enforce their own private business man- mask mandate if they want, correct?
0: Yes, that is correct. Businesses are able to, businesses and other entities just like CMS are able to implement or uh, enforce uh, mask wearing requirements in their establishments as they see fit. Uh, we did a
1: piece this week on, on, on Wake Up Charlotte about one-way masking. Basically, that's the idea of even though these mandates are lifting, if you are uh, immunocompromised or if you're just not quite comfortable going into public settings, you can still wear a, a really good, well-fitted N95, KN95, KN95 mask, and it actually is quite effective. Uh, based on what you know, does one-way masking, does, is that really that helpful?
0: Uh, absolutely, I think there's clear evidence that individuals uh, that they're that particularly the higher quality mass that you just described, uh, especially if it's well fitting, uh, do offer great uh, high level of protection for individuals uh, who are vulnerable uh, to protect them against infection. Uh, that's important as well as making sure people are up to date with their vaccines. And I think that is a central part of our response or our transition uh, is really focusing in completely on vaccines and making sure that everyone in our community uh, has has all the information that they need relative to being up to date uh, and have access and availability to do so.
1: You said at the commission meeting this past week, we're going to have to just learn to adapt and adjust to live with it. Is that your message to the folks at home that, that, hey, this is going to be, this is not going anywhere. This is endemic. This is not going anywhere. But perhaps we take a more nuanced, measured approach to it.
0: Yeah, and I think certainly you know our, our community has been uh, a country. Our world has been dealing with COVID for two years uh, and we really have been in what I would describe as our emergency response mode. Uh, and I believe this is a good pivot for us to begin to uh, really look at what managing COVID on a long term sustainable basis look like uh, looks like in the community and certainly for folks um, will have to make decisions about what their own risk is uh, we will have to access resources. We're going to do our job to make sure those resources are well available in the community at no cost to all of our residents uh, and make sure that individuals take those uh, again, multiple layers of protection uh, to ensure that they are protected from severe illness and any severe consequences of COVID. Uh, And that does include masking. That includes vaccination. That also includes testing and staying home if you're sick uh, and avoiding contact with other people uh, as well as self contact tracing. If you have COVID, uh, even if you diagnosed on a home test, make sure you tell those that you were around so they also can take those measures themselves.
1: Coming up after the break, one of the most taboo of topics and how this pandemic has impacted it here in Charlotte. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Our guest this morning, Mecklenburg County Health Director, Dr. Raynard Washington. Now I want to take a step back from, from COVID itself and some of the sort of side effects that this pandemic has had on people. I, I know one in five adults here in the area have reported depression during this, this time. ER visits related to suicide have increased uh, as, as well. Talk about that.
0: Sure. So, uh, uh, undoubtedly as I mentioned just a second ago we've been dealing with COVID for two years uh, which I think some people might have imagined might have been a two-week experience or even a two-month experience uh, but certainly not this long uh, as well as some in the reality that it's here uh, uh, that is, is fearful and it, it makes people anxious uh, and so I recognize fully that being quarantined or being in isolation or individuals not being able to go uh, and socialize and have contact has been difficult for all of us not just uh, the community but even us in leadership and other in the community, those working in healthcare every day, it's tough. Uh, it has been really, really tough for a lot of people. Uh, and I fully acknowledge that. Uh, and for some, it, that, that toughness has transitioned into uh, really the need for mental health support or care or services. Uh, and we have seen an uptick in that, the demand for those, those services. And, and I've heard both anecdotally and also data uh, shows uh, that people are experiencing more distress or depression uh, during this time because of the isolation, uh, as well as in the number and, and the lack of, of, of engaging in regular activities that help keep us encouraged and, and motivated. Uh, and so we uh, know that that's important. The county uh, uh, quickly mobilized the Beck Hope Initiative uh, to make those treatment and support resources available to those in our community who may not have health insurance as quickly as possible. Uh, we are looking at a number of ways right now to expand those resources even further, make them permanent uh, so that we are able to support individuals who are experiencing mental health conditions, whether they be low acuity or high acuity, uh that they can get the support and care they need uh, and deserve all
1: right i want to talk about something that, that's perhaps the most taboo of all tap topics and i don't know that we've ever devoted a segment to it on flashpoint and certainly on local tv it's not something we ever talk about on a regular basis and that is sexually transmitted infections and this is a this is a big deal because over the last few years a lot of it during the pandemic hep uh, hep a a big spike uh going back the last several years after seeing hardly anything for the last 15 years Uh, Chlamydia, the most common thing here in the Charlotte area. Gonorrhea cases uh, at a high rate as well. Syphilis as well increased 45% in the last 10 years. Um, A reported increase in HIV diagnosis, even though there's been a 60% reduction in in actual testing. Um, What is your message to the folks out there? A lot of this disproportionately affecting younger folks, communities of color as well. Uh, As health director, what are you going to do to combat this as we come out of this pandemic?
0: Certainly. So uh, as you know, as you've already mentioned, these issues relative to STIs have been uh, increasing, not just here in Mecklenburg, but across the state and country uh, for the last decade. Uh, and it is certainly concerning. Uh, and I believe that we uh, we are our, our teams, I am so fortunate have been working, continuing to work even throughout the pandemic to uh, continue our full scale prevention, intervention, and treatment for all of those conditions. Uh, and we will be working, uh, as you know, in Mecklenburg County, we've been fortunate to receive additional support and funding from our federal partners as a part of the ending the hiv epidemic Uh, and so we are looking very strategically at our work Uh, i talked a lot during the board meeting last week about a number of the initiatives that we've put into place uh, particularly on the prevention side our prep program our work to make sure we expand access to testing as well as access to contraception. To that point, uh, let to me interrupt you just real quick,
1: because some people might not know what you're talking about, PrEP, and the generic name, oh, uh, that's the yeah. generic name, that, that's Truvada, that, that's Discovy. Yeah, so, uh, so, so, so PrEP is a name.
0: pharmaceutical, as an oral medication that individuals uh, can take, uh, particularly individuals who are at risk of uh, HIV infection, can take on a daily basis uh, to uh, basically protect them from developing an HIV infection if they're exposed. Uh, so it's a once a day pill, uh, and the county provides support and uh, clinical care to individuals through a number of our community partners uh, to help support them uh, as they're uh, taking that medication.
1: Uh, Really important information that some people might not know and I'm glad that we can sit here and talk about it and and talk about it in an honest, frank way. Uh, Dr. Rainer-Washington. Doc, thanks for coming on, we appreciate it. We know you've got your hands full right now.
0: Thanks, I appreciate it.
1: All right, take care, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Ramp Charlotte is a taxpayer funded program that was created to keep people in their homes and their lights on during the pandemic. It has helped roughly 20,000 folks here in Charlotte, but as WCNC Charlotte's Nate Morabito shows us, the organizations actually approved less than half of all applications.
3: We discovered that's lower than at least two comparable cities. The reasons for most of the denials, ineligibility and a lack of proper documentation. Spend a few minutes with Tressie Arnold outside her church. Got behind on the rent a couple of months. I'm raising my two grandsons. And you'll quickly learn this grandmother's priorities are her faith and her two grandsons. Yeah, I want to be out on the street with my grandkids. I need somewhere to stay. It's too cold for that. And then the virus out, I don't want to be up in the shelter or nothing. She can thank Ramp Charlotte for keeping the three of them warm and protected <laughs> inside their Beatty's Ford Road corridor home. A lifesaver. Uh-huh, yes it was. That was a good deal right there. Especially when you consider for every four people like Arnold approved for money, Ramp Charlotte denied another six applicants. So you must feel grateful that you were one of the ones Yes, that were I am. I was real grateful. God worked that out. Mm-hmm. Well, it felt like that, you know, they, nobody cared. Joe Huss can't say the same. I was just, you know, basically beating against the wind. The Charlotte veteran behind on his house payment spent hours waiting in line, hoping to apply for mortgage help thinking he'd qualify since COVID-19 shut down the library, his main source for a computer, Internet and job searching. They wouldn't even let me apply, but Hus couldn't get past the gatekeepers later learning he's not eligible. Now I'm probably at least six months behind. Many more found that out too after they applied, considered ineligible since they didn't experience pandemic related events. Ramp Charlotte denied others for failing to turn in the required documents. The City of Charlotte reports Ramp Charlotte has approved 42% of all CARES Act funded applications and 45% of all emergency rental assistance funded applications, described as a strong level of approval and assistance activity. The City seems to think that's pretty good. What does that tell you?
4: That number reflects that. There's still a lot of people in our community that really, really need help.
3: City Council Member Malcolm Graham chaired Charlotte's Great Neighborhoods Committee for most of the pandemic.
4: We were not able to help everybody. Some folks simply fell through the cracks.
3: Considering how quickly the city rolled out the program and the nearly 20,000 people who received a combined $58 million worth of help,
4: we tried as best as we could to get the word out.
3: He believes Ramp Charlotte remains a great success story.
4: Obviously no program is perfect, but I think based on the hand that we were dealt, on the dollars that we had available, we tried to put our best foot forward.
3: That's not to say the city won't reassess to identify best practices. But Graham believes any shortfalls shouldn't detract from the positives, which include the fact that another $600,000 in reallocated rental help
4: is on the way. I think we're best in class in terms of how we responded to the crisis.
3: The numbers show Charlotte's approval rate is actually lower than two comparable cities we surveyed, Nashville and Columbus. Both have received fewer applications, but Nashville's approved about half, and Columbus even more, 67% so far. It's hard when you just get one check once a month. You know how that is. For those like Tressie Arnold, who did qualify and did provide the needed paperwork, I didn't have to worry about nothing getting up. Mm-hmm. The impact can't be overstated. The grandmother's expecting a second round of ramp Charlotte rental assistance soon. I've been taking care of man. I know they're going to pay it. I believe they're going to pay it. And keeping the faith while she waits. The organization paid to administer the program, Dream Key Partners, declined an on-camera interview for this story, saying we'd need to provide questions in advance, which is against WCNC Charlotte's policy. A spokesperson said, while it's unfortunate that Ramp Charlotte was created as a result of COVID-19 hardships, we are proud of the work and partnerships. Nate Morabito, WCNC Charlotte. So many things to think about right there. For one,
1: your tax dollars are at work, keep that in mind. Also, thank goodness we've got Nate on stories like this. He'll continue to keep an eye on that organization. And as he said, WCNC Charlotte will never provide a list of questions to an interview ahead of time. Something good to know. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint Baseball called America sport, but 75 years ago, the sport was met with social and racial separation. That's when the Negro League was created. WCNC Charlotte's Brianna Harper shows us how the Charlotte Knights are remembering the league and the local players who helped build it.
2: For almost 40 years, Eddie and Gail Burton were lovebirds and lifelong teammates. That was him, 16. But even before they met, Eddie Gigi Burton was part of another team the Negro League. As a second baseman playing from 1947 to 1955, he managed to make a name for himself. Dragging him out. Oh, very nice. Very nice. And he was quite the athlete. Playing among other athletes with the Harrisburg Giants, a Negro team out of Pennsylvania that soon became the Harrisburg Senators once the team integrated white players. From Baltimore, from Harrisburg, from Charlotte, he has proclamations from um, the East Coast and the teams that are celebrating the fact that these guys played for the love of the game and now that celebration will continue here at Truist Field as the Charlotte Knights honor Burton, a Queen City resident prior to his passing back in 2018, along with other Negro League players who will be recognized on April 15th as part of Jackie Robinson Day, donning the famous number 42 as a tribute. He didn't play with Jackie Robinson, but he was extremely proud as were all the ball players. black Proud and finally renowned for all that the Negro League and its players gave. The nights um, to keep his name alive and keep the concept alive, keep the leaguers alive. It's just, uh, it's amazing. But it's also just the start. The ultimate goal: pairing the past with the present to help build an even bigger baseball future. Get more African American children involved, and in, you know, in the sport, and then knowing their heritage and their history so they can carry a legacy on Brianna harper wcnc charlotte
1: really important history that we talk about that's gonna have to do it for flashpoint this week we hope to see you back here next week have a great week everybody